Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, our guest is singer, songwriter, and keyboardist Bobby Whitlock, here to talk about his time as a member of Delaney and Bonnie and Friends, Derek and the Dominoes, and George Harrison's All Things Must Pass studio band. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rhino Podcast. This is the last podcast of 2020, and it wouldn't be the same if we didn't have our good friend John Hughes. John, how are you? Oh my God, Rich, we've almost made it. 2020, we're throwing it out like the Thanksgiving leftovers that we just (laughs) couldn't quite throw out last week. Make sure you tie that garbage bag before you toss it. Oh, we're winding it down, but we've got a great episode for you today. But we have some cool releases coming out next year that we need to let you folks know about. Yeah, I mean, let's already look ahead to 2021. We've got that awesome Black Sabbath Volume 4 Revisited Super Deluxe Edition of that band's 72 classic with the newly remastered original album with just amazing sound now. 20 previously unreleased studio and live recordings. It is available in two formats, four CDs and five LPs. Talk about heavy vinyl. Um, It's going to be available from rhino.com. It comes out February 12th, 2021, but you can pre-order it now. Yeah, just like the other Black Sabbath set that just came out, the live shows are just awesome to listen to. You can just hear, and Ozzy's so on point. The band just sounds fantastic. People refer to, like, slabs of vinyl. These are slabs of vinyl. Yeah, no kidding. It's a heavy-duty box set, man. Love it. Heavy duty. If your tastes veer in completely different directions, or maybe you like them both, Aretha Franklin's Aretha career-spanning box set covers nearly 60 years of her amazing career. It is a four CD and a digital collection dedicated to the Queen of Soul with 81 tracks, 19 of those previously unreleased alternate versions, demos, rarities, live performances. There's a a cut-down version, as we like to say, in the biz. That's a two LP and a single CD version that just has highlights from the box set, if that's more your speed. All formats are available for pre-order now. It comes out July 30th, really looking ahead, and you can get both of these at rhino.com. Looking forward to that. There really is some fantastic Aretha on there. Yeah, you you can't do better than Aretha. This is the time when you can use the word transcendent and not sound like a total knob. 
<laughs> yeah, she definitely stands above, you know, just about every other singer out there. For, for sure. <laughs> yeah, no yeah, no yeah. debate. Well, happy holidays to everybody out there. We hope that your new year is shiny and relevatory and you can actually go out to eat again. Yeah. And can you believe, Rich, this is going into our fourth year of the Rhino podcast? It's a joy to do. And where's the time gone? Blink of an eye, but hey, I love it. I do too. I do too. Well, thank you, John. Happy holidays. We'll see you next year. Thank you. See you, Rich. Well, today's guest played part in a very important period of music for me personally, so it's my great honor to speak with singer, songwriter, and keyboardist Bobby Whitlock. Bobby shares stories about his time as a founding member of Delaney and Bonnie and Friends. Their album, Delaney and Bonnie and Friends, on tour with Eric Clapton, passed the 50th anniversary milestone in 2020, as did two other hugely monumental rock albums. Bobby sang, played keyboards, wrote one, and co-wrote six songs with Eric Clapton for Derek and the Dominoes' Layla and other assorted love songs, and accepted George Harrison's invitation to play and sing on the former Beatles' solo debut, All Things Must Pass. Bobby called us from Austin, Texas, where he lives and performs with his wife, Coco. You can bring Joe. You know, it's the 50th anniversary of the release of On Tour, Delaney and Bonnie and Friends with Eric Clapton. And it just seemed to me that we couldn't let it go by without commemorating it in some way on the Rhino podcast. This record, just a little personal background. When I was 18 years old, my dad gave me this record on a cassette tape. He, uh, he said, I think you might like this record. It's a little bit of an understatement. That record became so important to me and you never heard that music on the radio and i have no idea how he came across it it was a uh purist music you know your dad was a hip dude you know he had uh he probably had a volume of r&b and stuff and real rock and roll i would imagine yeah yeah there's a certain group of folks that just really locked into you know what yeah. we were doing well and you come from that whole background of things i mean right after you left high school you headed to memphis and you were hanging out at stacks records quite a bit how'd you get hooked in with that crew i was playing someplace outside my own band in memphis don nix came into my world and he's got going down and singing from memphis and he introduced me to Duck Dunn, and then we all became buddies. And they they would come to wherever I was playing, you know, when I was in town. And when the MGs weren't on the road, they were always showing up. And uh, we all got tight. And uh, next thing you know, we'd go out to Duck's house and hang out, you know, on the weekends, have a drink, sing, play piano a little bit, talk music, and play records. I mean, I got to hang out at Stax Records anytime, every day, night, and, and every session I wanted to be at, I could be listened to. But that got me like you know, hand claps on I, I thank you. That's, so I mean, that opened the door for me in, in my world of R&B. Next thing you know, they, you know, they wanted to record a thing on me and put me 
on the new hip label. I was the first uh, artist signed on their hip label, Stax's oh. hip label. Oh, cool. So, yeah, so but uh, one duck just by accident found uh, Delaney and Bonnie singing in a uh, bowling alley, and he brought them to Memphis, and Stax were going to put the machine behind them. But then it was Bonnie and Delaney, and Stax were looking at it like she's the next white Aretha Franklin. Yeah. You know? And that's what the plan was. They were going to put the whole machine, the whole shooting match. It was really the first record called Home. Home. Even though it that's turned right. out to be the second. Yeah, it turned out to be the second one. Second released, first but recorded. Stacks had them, you know. And then when they got to L.A., Delaney went and did a deal with Electra and Jack Holzman. And while he still had the sax, <laughs> Stacks deal, you know. <laughs> well, that was all right. That was all right with Stacks, you know, because they just... Held on to it, and they rode the publicity wave for the original Delaney and Bonnie and friends. Yeah. It it all seemed to balance out in a a weird kind of way. Right. You know, what what we were doing. They asked me to come start, get this band together with them. Delaney and Bonnie did. Uh, You lived with them out in L.A. when you first went out there, didn't you? Uh, Yeah, I sure did, you know. What was that like living at their house? Well, it was like this. They asked me to, to come out, and I'm... Got my little white Nehru jacket from the Lansky Brothers, and off I went, you know. Furthest I'd been west and out of Memphis was uh, we played the Pine Ballroom, Texarkana, Texas, a couple times. <laughs> That's as far as I had been. But I'd always dreamed, and everybody dreamed of, dreamed of, of going somewhere, you know. Yeah, sure. And uh, when I had the opportunity, they called it. He's gone Hollywood, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Good you went to L.A. Yeah. Well, he's done gone Hollywood, you know. People treated you different, too, because we went out there. But there was, a like, a group from Tulsa. Everybody worked well together. When I went out there, I was sleeping on their couch at Delaney's house. Delaney and Bonnie were pregnant with Becca, a mammal, Delaney's mama, and had Preston, that's her divorced husband, he was sleeping in the garage, and there's a two-bedroom place with one bath, and yeah. it was just Delaney and Bonnie and me start getting it together. You know, He was writing songs. He got us to write a song called Alone Together. That's the only song that Bonnie really had anything to do with, you know, was that one song. And I was the writer on that song as well. Lane wanted to include everybody in the in the very beginning. And uh, then things started to roll, you know, and everybody, uh, we had the right people at the right time. Everything was falling in place for Delaney and Bonnie and friends. I moved out, went to the plantation, and at the plantation there was Jimmy Carstein, Chuck Blackwell. I mean, people were coming through there, went in one door and out the other, you know, Taj Mahal, they rehearsed there. Wow. We started rehearsing. We, Leon, you know, we... Jesse Ed Davis, he hung Ed, there too, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ed Davis, he had, uh, engineer. Oh, he was great. He was a good guy. 
And listen to Dwayne Allman's slide. Dwayne Allman was influenced by uh, Ed Davis. You know, I, I'm telling you, that's that's a fact. I ran across that the other day, and uh, I checked it out. And sure enough, yeah. Wow. Ed Davis, he was fine. That's where Dwayne got his influence greatly by uh, Ed Davis. Interesting. That's for sure. Was there a Tulsa connection at the plantation? Yeah, well, everybody was from there, including the dancing girls, you know. The dancing girls, you know, K-4 Boy and Patsy Camp. J.J. Kale was living in the, in the garage apartment out back with Patsy. And Carl Radel was about four blocks down Matillaha. And Gary Gilmore was just a little bit further down, and all from Tulsa, running back and forth, you know, and... Uh, it was it was a pretty amazing experience and I opened it for me and yeah. you know, and everybody was coming through the back door at the plantation and hanging and leaving out the front, you know, and everybody it was all about the music and everybody the camaraderie. We played with everybody. Everybody played with us eventually, you know. We had a, a management, Alan Paris or group three management. But Alan his family were, he was an heir to the Dixie Lily Sweetheart Cup Company. Yeah, Dixie Cups. And he, yeah, he had, and that was his family, and he was the heir to that, that thing. He had more money than he, he knew what to do with. He had to go to the doctor. He had so much money. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he did. Well, Alan, Alan had the best weed and, and everything in the whole of L.A. And so all the rock stars and movie stars, you know, all that, they all, everybody all that, the upper echelon of that running together out there in Hollywood, you know, everybody knew Alan. And, and he's not around anymore. I loved him. He was a good man. And he just thought the world of Lane and Bonnie and friends. Alan Parisi was introduced to us by Graham Parsons. Wow, small right. world. Uh, yeah, Graham came to, or when we were first putting it together, we played at a little old place called Snoopy's Opera House. We made five hours a piece a night and did five sets. But we got tight, you know, that was what it was about. Right. It couldn't be about money, but we, when it was Delaney and we were putting it together because there wasn't none, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but uh, well, we were doing the right thing. It seemed like every step it took was the exact right one, you know. Yeah. And uh, Graham, you know, the word got around pretty quick, you know, about what was going on with us. Delaney and Bonnie and I did a radio tour with Alan. We just went around to every uh, major city in, in the United States and went to the main radio session. Most of them were uh, set up, you know, but we went to some place like in Atlanta, <laughs> a couple other places in Cincinnati or something, and we just walked in. Alan Parisi introduced them, you know, he said, we'll just go in, and then next thing you know, we're walking in, and Blaine said who we are, and we're on air. <laughs> you know, we're, we're sitting down with that acoustic guitar, and we're being played. We're just doing this radio tour. We're going to come back with a band. And that uh, very thing we did. We actually did that. And came back with a great band. And when we recorded the Electra album. Um, uh, Except No Substitute. Yeah. We've got to get ourselves together. Understand each other. The time is 
Alan sent a copy of that to George Harrison to check out, you know. And then George, he loved it. And then he turned Eric on to it. And then that's when Eric wanted to be in our band. He wanted to play our kind of rock and roll. It wasn't a thing of us getting him to play with, with us or anything like that. He wanted to play with us. We didn't have to ask. Right. Was Eric Clapton the guy who got you guys to open for Blind Faith on the U.S. tour? Yeah, he sure did. Those guys traveled separately. They just showed up at the gig and, and just let it all out. You know, it really wasn't a cohesive unit. He told me that we just up there battling it out. That was really it. And what was the first gig like at Madison Square Garden, opening for Blind Faith? Delaney and Bonnie and I had been doing that acoustic thing, so we were really easy with that. When it come time to go on, there was a revolving stage in this place. The front speakers went out. It wouldn't work. I mean, in our band, we couldn't play with the whole band. And so they had to stop the thing, took the band off the stage, and Delaney said, let's go. And they turned the uh, monitors around, and uh, that stage still going all around. And it was just Delaney, Bonnie, and me, and acoustic guitar like we started, and folding chairs out in front of the whole place in Madison Square Garden. Just carrying the sound just with monitors? Carrying the whole Madison Square Garden with yep, just the stage yep, monitors? going round and round. Wow. I kept seeing this one person go by, and they were marveling. At and it was just Delaney and Bonnie and me up there on the stage going round and round <laughs> <laughs> until they got, to, until they got uh, the thing working. It was written up in a lot of reviews that you blew Blind Faith away every night, night after night. Each and every time. We were a very tough act to follow. And then Clapton started sitting in with you guys more and more as the tour progressed, didn't he? Yeah, he was hanging out with us, you know. Mm -hmm. We all got, became friends, you know. And he yeah. liked the camaraderie that we all shared. And and it was great when it was great, but when it wasn't, it wasn't. And it took a while, but it, it was the real thing, you know. It was, everybody was there for all the right reasons. And, and it wasn't about the money, it was about the music. And Because uh, there wasn't any money, but there was <laughs> lots of music. <laughs> and that closeness, I mean, we were singing and playing. And, oh, hell, I mean, in the hotel lobbies, wherever we landed, that's where we, we would be singing and playing acoustic guitar in the hotel rooms you know just every time you turn around on on the plane <laughs> on the bus i mean like that was it but that was what it was all about i watched delaney road uh, open road right in front of me and we were rolling down the road man wow. and that's what he wrote about right it was, so i mean it's an incredible experience for me What did he teach you about writing a rock and roll song? I asked him, and I said, how do you do that? You do it so effortlessly. I, I had written, like, Thorntree in the Garden, Dreams of a Hobo, and another song. You know, they're all ballads, you know. I asked yeah. him, I said, how do you do that? He said, just change the beat. Change the beat and do a different tempo. Approach it another way. And I went, 
Oh, hell, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> Went home and I wrote, uh, Where There's a Will, There's a Way. Yeah, of course, he gave him, him himself and Bonnie credit on it, but uh, <laughs> they didn't have anything. They didn't have anything to do with it. Well, that song on that album, on the On Tour album, is one of the jams. Man, it's going fast. It's cooking. He arranged it. All right, well, that turnaround in the middle. Yeah. But the song was just basically, you know, C, F, and G, you know, three verses, and that's it, you know? Yeah. My first rock and roll song. I played it to him, and he said, because I was real proud of it when I'd written it. Oh, yeah. You know, take, I'd follow his advice. He said, man, we're going to do that on the thing. So I was thinking, I'm going to be singing it. No, but he he took it and sang it. <laughs> but he did that turnaround in the middle. Do, 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 no. He put that arrangement together, and it just really took it to a whole other level. Yeah. You know, and uh, when you got Eric Clapton and all of those guys up there cooking, what a what a wonderful experience. When you guys went over there and you started playing some shows with Eric, you did a run in Germany, and then you came back to the UK and you play the Royal Albert Hall. And out there yeah, in front, yeah. you guys opened up the show, and it was you and Carl and Jim and... Who else? There was one other that came out with you when you were doing that. Dave Mason. Dave Mason, yeah. You played and sang Give Me Some Love, and you look out, and there's Steve Winwood watching you do it. Yeah, and I always struggle with the third verse, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I look up, and, and there's Steve Winwood, you know, standing across there. I was like, all right. I'm kicking it, though. I got to do that. I got to open up sometimes with Midnight Hour and then 634. You know, and it give me some loving. And then George Harrison was there for that show, too. And after that, he joined the tour. I mean, did you have to pinch yourself? Or were you were you just like, oh, no, George is on the show now. No big whoop. No. I tell you what did happen. When he stepped on our bus, went by his house in Eastern and picked him up. When he stepped on the bus, first thing he did was lay that guitar in Delaney's lap, uh, that brown uh, Telecaster. He just <laughs> handed it to him and uh, keep Delaney from asking him. Uh, now, Delaney used to love to ask people for guitars. Is that what was what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Alan <laughs> told him, George, already in advance, he said, man, look, like, I won't tell you, you know, he's probably going to wind up asking for something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so George just went ahead and brought the guitar on and gave it to him without, uh, without Delaney having to say anything. He said, I've got something for you, man. <laughs> and that was the guitar that he played on the roof for Let It Be. Yeah, 
Yeah, I played that guitar a bunch of times because, you know, the Delaney, Coco played it and recorded with it, you know. Oh, wow. You know, because she was married to Delaney for 13 years. And the Layla Saga. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, we're, we're, we're the happy upside of it, Coco and me. Yeah, our, our, stories, our story is still alive and, that's and doing well. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. You know, so these shows, the UK shows, were the shows that were recorded for Delaney and Bonnie and friends on tour there at Clapton for the release. What stands out in your mind when you think about those shows? Well, that were the focus and focal point from everything that was going on. Everybody's eyes was on us. I realized the influence that we had and that we were having and the attention that we were getting and generating I understood that, you know, and we were worthy, you know, we were worthy of it. Uh, we really were at that point in time, that whole band and entity, uh, it couldn't be touched. It was the best band that there was, period, you know, uh, we killed it, man, we, everywhere. That band was so intense that it moved fixed stages. You know, uh, wow. in these old halls and stuff, my, my amps would be rocking. But not from volume, but just from the intensity of, of playing. Just think about Jim Gordon on drums, Carl Radel. Well, we actually had Billy Preston on electric piano, Jim Price, Bobby Keys, Rita Coolidge singing background, Joe Tex playing kungus, Dave Mason, Eric Clapton, George Harrison were our guitar players, me and <laughs> my thing, Delaney and Bonnie. That was an intense band. Yeah. I'm telling you right now, it was awesome. Awesome, awesome. It just sounds on that record like the music is flowing effortlessly, and it's like grease lightning, man. It's really cooking. Oh, hell, people didn't even know what happened to them. Yeah. They didn't know what hit them. You know, I've seen it. I've seen it uh, like my mouths dropping wide open, man. And, and everybody loved us. The one song on that that really caught my ear the very first time I got into that record was Coming Home. And... Is yeah, that yeah. those guitar parts on there? How much did Delaney and George and Eric sit down and figure out harmonies and things like that? Because there's some great harmony guitar parts on that song. Yeah, well, uh, Delaney um, uh, told them all what to do. You know? Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, he laid it out for them, you know, and uh, everybody's part coming natural. Well, the way he structured things and arranged things, he didn't have to really tell you what to do. It was just laid out there for you to do. Right, you know? right. He right. opened the door for you, and it was apparent and evident when it needed to be done, you know. Oh, 
Yeah, well, what are you going to tell Eric Clapton to play? You know? <laughs> right. Are you going to tell him that? And, and George, you know, are you going to show him what to play? And Dave Mason, are you going to show him what to play? No. You you want to, to get the best out of everything. The only thing Delaney did really outside of doing what he, writing the song and arranging it and everything was to allow everything to take place, you know. Yeah. He arranged the, the background parts, but they came natural, too. Playing and singing the second and third part, you know, I didn't know I was going to be doing chick parts when I got there, but I was good with it because uh, all of my R&B stuff. <laughs> you know, yeah, so. you had the background. Yes, background. Yeah. It's real cool stuff. Yeah. Any other songs on that record that you, when you think about it, you're like, man, yeah, there was something special about that one. No, because I don't really think that much about the record, except in its entirety. You know, I'm, I don't go back and listen to old things that I've been a part of, but uh, I love the one we when I do Poor Elijah and stuff. I loved it when we did Poor Elijah with just acoustic guitar, too, you see. Yeah. It was just as powerful. Every song that he wrote was just fabulous, you know. Uh, uh, I was there when he wrote Coming Home. You know, I was sitting right there next to him. I was really fortunate, you know, and then I was available the opportunity to be surrounded by all these incredible, incredible players. And I didn't miss anything. No, I took right. I took something from everybody, unbeknownst to myself, you know. So I mean, all all these people that I met through them, uh, Levon Helm, all those guys, Rick Danko, you know. Yeah. But everybody was loved Delaney and Bonnie and friends. They loved us, and Delaney hated it when I I had to leave, you know. But I couldn't take it anymore because they were having their own personal problems, sure. spilling into everybody else's life. Then it got really difficult for me. I was living across the street and one door down from him, and uh, it was my time to go, you know, yeah. and I didn't know what to do. And I called Steve Cropper. I asked him, I, I said, I'm in a crossroads here, a dilemma. I said, I, I can't stay with the learning body anymore, and I can't come back to Memphis, and I don't want to stay here. He said, why don't you call Eric? Give Eric a call and ask him, you come over and visit a couple of days and clear your head. I said, all right. And uh, he said, call me back and tell me what he said. And so I called him. I called him and he picked it up. He picked the phone up himself and I said, hey, man. I said, I'm, I got to leave Lenny and Bonnie. Everybody else is already gone. I said, it's my time. And I said, I want to come over and visit, you know, a few days just to, Cropper suggested come over. He said, sure, come on over. It was a Wednesday, and Steve had told me, he said, call back and let him know what he said. Well, I called him back, and he said, come on over. And he said, I'll have a, a ticket for you tomorrow. And so the next thing, you know, UPS, knock, knock, ticket for me to go to England, and a one-way ticket to England. And uh, 
Off I went, and uh, so that was like Thursday or Friday. It was a Friday, and um, next thing you know, I'm overnight, and I'm so I got in the black cab and uh, told him to take me to Mr. Clapton's residence. And he said, I've, always, I've always wanted to go, and so we pull in Herwood Edge, you know, and and there wasn't nobody there except uh, like one car out front. Saw Eric in the window looking out, and he came up and he said, "What are you doing here?" And I said, well, you said, come on over. And I said, here I am. <laughs> and so, and that's no joke, man. So I had my suitcase and my guitar, and he said, take your choice of rooms or whatever you want upstairs. And so that was it. And we just became friends. And see, when he was uh, with Delaney and Bonnie, they had him completely surrounded. The two people had was one person surrounded at all times, you know. And so Eric's relationship with everybody else was more or less cordial and close, you know. Mm-hmm. And because uh, Bonnie and Delaney had him cornered. And, and, yeah. uh, well, here he and I became friends. He took me back to where he grew up. I met his grandmother, you know, Grandma Rose. We got to see her a lot of times. And he was always going to visit her. Met some of his people he went to school with and uh, that he grew up with. So he took me around where he grew up and then into London. Some of his more eclectic friends, you know, in London, some artists and night people, you know. Yeah, yeah right, right. <laughs> in, in London, three in the morning people. And pretty, <laughs> pretty cool, you know. And we were doing that thing. We were right in the middle of it, you know. Uh, we went, Eric and me both went to Talk of the Town. And to see Stevie Wonder and, and the Stones all had their girlfriends and the table in the front and the middle. And then, you know, I mean, you know, those guys actually did hang out with each other. And they're yeah. all friends, you know. Yeah. And here I am, you know, and uh, sitting right there and Stevie Wonder just killing it on stage. <laughs> you know. There's a guy who came up to Mick and handed him the, the flyer for the evening. And he said, can I get you guys to sign this? And Nick said, sure. And so he signed it and passed it down to Charlie, and Charlie signed it, and Keith and Keith. And Eric signed it and handed it to me, and I, and I wrote Rocky the Flying Squirrel on it, you know, <laughs> and passed it on to somebody else. They signed it. And then uh, he got back, and Nick was reading, and he says, who's Rocky the Flying Squirrel? That's me, you know. But see, for me, I didn't, I, I didn't feel like I was worthy for all that, you know. That's not what I was about, you know. Right. That's not what I was looking for. Yeah, yeah. You, know? you were just going to stay for a week or two. What did he say when you told him? Well, I guess I ought to be going. Well, well, I ran out of money, and I said I got to go. Well, we were having lunch in a, a, a calf, you know, truck calf, truck stop calf, and uh, so let me get it, you know. I'm going to buy lunch. And I got up there and I didn't have enough to pay for lunch for me and Eric. And he said, I don't have any money either. He said, I thought we were going to put together a band. He said, let's go tomorrow to the office and I'll get us set up with a draw. And I went, oh, hell, that's going to be fun. Man. And then, <laughs> then we started really like taking it right to the next level of, you know, what do we want to do, writing all these songs and stuff. And, do you remember uh, one or two of the first songs you wrote together after you went to Robert Stigwood's office, you got set up with the draw, and then you guys got to work? Yeah. What did you write? Yeah, we started out, and the very first song we wrote together was I Looked Away. And oh. it just so happened that it, it uh, 
became the first song on the album, you know. Yeah. And then the next song after that was Any Day, and then Tell the Truth after oh, that. Oh, man. And then after that, well, we went to France to do some stuff, came back, and I did. I came back earlier. Eric was hanging with this gal up there for a little while, a week or so, and I, I went on back to Hurtwood. And then he comes in, and the next thing you know, he's walking up playing the opening to Bell Bottom Blues and then the first verse. And he had everything except the end of the second, and it didn't have a chorus, and it didn't have the end of the third verse. And so I jumped in and uh, wrote it off. Do you want to see me Giving me my my credits, songwriting credits, and everything now on on, the, on Bell Bottom Blues. I didn't have my name on the album, but I looked at it like well, the office did it, you know. Yeah, right. Because right. <laughs> I would have, I would have had too many songs on there for them for Robert Sigler's liking, you know. And <laughs> it turned out Bell Bottom Blues really was uh, one of the one of the big singles. But uh, Eric's made it all of it right, you know. This is coming out as, as well. Uh, the Domino album is the 50th anniversary. And the, right. all things is 50th That's anniversary. Right. I so mean, that band, that core band, uh, which turned out to be... George asked, asked uh, Eric to put the best... If he and I would put together a band for him to do the All Things Was Past record. He called up one afternoon. And I was... It's right. Not long after I'd gone over to Eric's, after the line by, and uh, Eric and I were just getting to know each other. Probably the second week or third week I was over there, living out at Hurtwood. George uh, called one afternoon and was talking to Eric. He said, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, he said, can we do a couple things on it? He said, yeah. I said, what was that? And he said, George, he wants to know if uh, well, you and I put together a band and uh, be the core band on this new record. I said, and sure. And he said, well, why don't you give the guys a call? And uh, meaning Carl Radel. And I thought he meant Jim uh, Keltner. <laughs> Keltner <laughs> couldn't do it. He was doing the gig with the boy Zabo. But and it couldn't be over for a month. We needed somebody now. Fate had it. Jim was in town. And, uh, oh wow! He was doing some kind of record. George gave me free reign to do anything I wanted to do on All Things Must Pass. You know, it was my idea to put the pump organ on all those things. You yeah. know, and I played all the all the Hammond except uh, behind that locked door and Billy's playing. But I mean anything. I, I, all the hanging bells. You know, uh, and you hear it. Uh, that was just like anything that you wanted to do, you know, yeah. the background parts, you know, right. all of those things. He didn't say do this, do that. He said anything you want to do, you know. Look at these albums that you were a part of. You are a huge part of rock and roll history, Bobby. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'll sometimes stop and ponder it, you know, to be a part of these great records and all this time later to still be alive and appreciate it. I do appreciate what I did and the role that I played 
in everybody's life and career. Uh, I made lifetime friends, you know, of influenced people, and people have influenced me. I just feel like I'm, I was, you know, really it's an honor to be Bobby Whitlock, you know, and privileged to be around these incredible folks. And I'm just so glad that I, I had my head about me, you know, and, yeah. and that I didn't get off into left field, <laughs> you know, yeah. when I was young and impressionable, I actually was listening, you know, feel real fortunate for all this. And to have you come and want to kind of bring it all full circle, you know. Well, I'm telling you, it's an honor and a privilege to talk to you about this today. All this music means so much to me and all of my friends and my whole circle of musical people, all of these records are so highly regarded and you were such a huge part of these records. So thank you so very much. Yeah, well, thank you for your kind words and asking me to be a part of this thing. I'm happy about it. It's made my day, that's for sure. <laughs> well, thank you, Bobby, man. Right on. All right. All right. music we used in this episode was from the following releases which you can stream at your favorite digital music provider delaney and bonnie and friends on tour with eric clapton and the on tour with eric clapton box set that's the cool one with the road case cover featuring four shows from the 1969 uk tour and of course bell bottom blues was from layla and other assorted love songs derek and the dominoes for more information on Bobby's story, check out his 2010 book, Bobby Whitlock, A Rock and Roll Autobiography. Happy holidays to y'all. Stay safe, and we'll see you after the break. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved.